0: Hey, what's going on, my friend? Hey, yeah, Hugh. <laughs> he looks. He's. He looks at me like, oh, you talking to me? Yeah. There's nobody else in here. <laughs> Come on, snap to it, Reg. Let's go. We got we got podcasts to record here today. Got to be on your toes, okay? All right. <laughs> all right. Are you all set? I well, I hope I am. Are you awake? Okay? All right. Cool. <laughs> All right. Let's get started then um, so you can get back to whatever you were doing. <laughs> I, I won't take up too much more of your time. Just bear with me for a few minutes here. Okay? <laughs> All right. Here we go. Put it in the books. 386. Episode three eight sixer. I'll give you the three S's, I'll give you the music, and you give me the, I'll give, you give me the music, I'll give you the podcast. All right? Okay. You're all set now, right? Okay, good. Sounds exciting now, isn't it? It What's that sign say? Applesauce? (laughs) All right, here we go. Boy, that's a nice reference. I hope, I hope somebody out there, I wish I could said that on the actual podcast. Do you, do you understand the reference I just made? Now, you don't remember Larry Sanders' show, do you? Now you're too young. Oh, what a shame. Great show, great show by Gary Shandling about uh, late night television. Nobody's going to hear that cool Larry uh, Sanders reference I made because none of this is heard. All that's heard is after I say 3, 2, 1, right? It's a shame. So my best material is right now, and no one ever hears it. All right, here we go. Star, smile strong. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod-tastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Pod-tastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. It's staring you right in the face and in the ears. It's right there for you. But of course, as I say, every podcast listening is certainly a, a cop. In the process. But there's a few other cogs. Another important cog is to get out there and tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic and it should be theirs too. That loyalty and devotion, ah. it's like a breath of fresh air. If you like what you hear, don't forget, you go to WGNRadio.com and go to the podcast section on the web and on the site, and then you hit the prompt for this podcast, and it's Christmas in October. Dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts for your binging pleasure. Just keep listening and scrolling down and loading more. Load this one. Number 386. It's not very often that a world event can hit home. We today are inundated with pictures from literally all over the world, uh, Between television and the smartphone, I mean, what part of life is not visually documented for us on not just a daily basis, but practically a minute-by-minute basis? We can be... Visually stimulated as well as visually informed and visually, uh, I guess, what's the word? Um, voyeuristic in some ways. I mean, it, we, can, we can see any part of the world, we could see almost anything we want today on demand. When you think about how the world was mystified, say, I don't know, the first pictures of television that became mainstreamed in terms of the public were probably in the early to mid-40s, which seems like, I mean, (laughs) it's almost a thing about it. It's not that far away that... uh, the, the idea of television and transmitting pictures will be almost to the masses. Technology had been around for a while, but in terms of the masses, in terms of it being something that was in people's homes, it wasn't until the, the mid to late 40s when televisions really started to become commercial products. The idea of transmitting images had been around for a few years before that. It was kind of like the internet. There's always a, a period when a developing technology um, is around and it takes a while before it becomes a part of the uh, the mainstream in terms of the population. The Internet, from what I understand, was around for many years as a communication tool initially, I believe. At least it got its its main usage as a um, as a communication device uh, for college campuses, like uh, you know, teachers and administrators. The ability to communicate on this this inner network, this internet, if you will. <laughs> that's that's where the name comes from, folks. Internet, internetwork amongst I believe colleges from what I what I understand it might have others may have used it as well but it, it, I, I remember reading that that was where it got its main usage and then started to expand and suddenly it was uh, a commercial viable product in the early 90s but uh, it had been around for a while and most of our Technologies that were first invented as we as uh, not meant to be commercial enterprises, but either military or in the case of many of the uh, inventions, space exploration is was responsible for many uh, new products and capabilities that at first were developed. Uh, for our space program going on for decades. So, uh, it's been, an, it's always an interesting evolution of that. And as I said, television had been around. Um, but this idea of, of the masses being, um, affected by and addicted to, probably more likely, the visual, um, is still a relatively, New concept when you think about the the the, the world <laughs> the the time the world timeline uh, you know we're we're maybe at you know eighty years of this capability uh, and or more like I said before visual pictures became something that the, the masses were aware of but uh, it was mostly in the mid forties late to mid forties when television became a, a ha- an at-home advice, uh, device where people were buying them and watching. And it, it revolutionized everything. We went from being an, an a, a print world and an audio world, relying on newspapers and radio for our news and information and entertainment, um, to visual. And as I've said many times on this podcast, we are a visual animal. Yes, we read. Yes, we hear. But, you know, a picture, as they say, paints a thousand words. And you can't see a picture without your eyes. And you need the visual. And we are visual animals. We react more to it. We enjoy it more. We are stimulated by it more. Um, we seek it out and we do get addicted. And I'm, my point is when you think about in the early days of television and transmitting pictures uh, over device, uh, it didn't take much to overwhelm us and impress us and stimulate us. The, 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 the fact that it could be done at all was stimulating and impressive and life changing. Because it did transform the culture of the world, and 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 transformed us as human beings, how we get along, how how we how we do things. Uh, the visual has always been the main sensory uh, stimulation for us, and today. My gosh! I mean, it was just I was just talking a couple of podcasts ago about the Sphere in Las Vegas and how it is this multi-sensory assault. Uh, and while it this concert venue, as well as this entertainment venue, it will it will certainly host concerts as it's doing currently right now with you two being the christening band of it. But in between, when when the band isn't playing, there's There's also a film that was directed by Darren Aronofsky uh, to bring home this amazing and visual, as I said, I think assault is the only word you can say, uh, of this, this spherical screen literally surrounded by images. And uh, from the, the pictures that I've seen, it's it's quite impressive. And it's it's hard not to be because we are these visual animals. And so when you see the first television screens back in the 40s, when people had these small little squares and they were all hulled around these small little squares and just to see this picture and then it and where we're at today with the sphere, the latest uh technology it's pretty amazing in, in 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 a relatively short time period and the pictures that we are able now to transmit uh you know the the the, the web telescope in space is showing the enormity and the <laughs> eternity of our universe sending back photos that we have only guessed at and hypothesized about, and I don't know how many people are paying attention to the to the pictures that are frequently shown of the this web telescope that is in deep space showing us uh, parts of the universe that we never even could have imagined, and we were seeing things happening and and it's it's rewriting. Our knowledge. We don't. I don't even think the average person knows, and I don't know if they actually care, which is kind of sad. But this uh, this Webb telescope um, ultimately will rewrite not only our history books but our educational books. Um, we are just in the early stages of when these pictures come back of, of uh, the, the 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 astronomers. And and the the people that are completely dedicated their lives and education uh, and questions of space, they're just beginning to analyze now, just beginning to understand and and maybe have to even begin to formulate new theories on things uh, because of what we are seeing for the first time. The, The amount of knowledge that is coming to us visually through this web telescope um is changing and ultimately will change how we view ourselves as a species and and as a member of the universe and the galaxies and it's all visual and what's so crazy is i remember i was a little kid i don't i i i don't fully remember it i remember the the buzz about it but now historically uh, you know, I've seen it and experienced it a- afterward. Uh, but back, uh, you know, Elvis Presley did a a satellite concert that was shown around the world. It it uh, it was originally held in Hawaii and was broadcast around the world via satellite. And this was considered a. A technological marvel that we could send pictures like this around the world. We had been moving in that direction, but ironically, it was Elvis Presley, not uh, <laughs> uh, you know something uh, you know uh, more important. I guess you might want to say it was Elvis's. It was an Elvis concert. <laughs> that uh, that ultimately spearheaded the entire use of satellites in early 1973. I believe it was in January. Uh, but it it, it was, was it was groundbreaking, and that was just 19 what 73. So literally this year, 50 years ago. We were using, for the first time, real satellite um, technology to beam around the world, and now we've got this telescope fifty years later that is going to the deepest, darkest, most unreachable parts of space and sending us back pictures. So uh, it's it's quite it's quite amazing. In the words of the show from uh, here in the Chicago area. The magic door. It's quite amazing, but true. Open, come open the magic door with me. Oh, boy. There's a reference, folks. Google the magic door. I'm sure it's online somewhere. Go on YouTube and look up the magic door. Talk about the beginning days of, of television and television technology. Uh, wow, that was probably a show. In the late 60s, early 70s, but had a religious bent to it, which I never, as a little kid, I never knew. It was a kid's show. It was called The Magic Door, and there was this superimposed little tiny tove who took us through these adventures. And for many years, as I watched this as a kid, as many of my friends watched this as a kid, because it was on uh, Sunday mornings, I believe, or Saturday mornings. And little did I know that it was a Jewish-based show, and it was teaching stories from the Torah. In fact, it took place in Torahville, <laughs> and there was Booby Beaver, and <laughs> and all these shows. But they but they were they were aimed at kids, and it worked. I mean, I grew up in a in a Catholic home. And I watched Magic Door every week. Went to Catholic school in grammar school and watched this show if you'll pardon the pun, religiously every week. And I wasn't the only one. Kids from all around the Chicago area were watching this 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 locally produced kids' show and it was it was it was a it was based on the Jewish faith. There was a rabbi there it was it was it was now that I look back at it, but as a little kid, I was seeing these images, not really sure what it was. It was just kind of fun and interesting. There was a little tiny tove, I think he went into a the magic door was in an acorn or something and and went to this little world it was it was it was a low rent version of Mr. Rogers in a way, in terms of going to another land, but it was teachings uh in the jewish culture in the jewish faith and i remember then finally one year as i got a little older still watching it probably toward the end when i stopped watching it that i realized i'm like wait a minute and i'm not the only one because there was a there was a a portion of the show on the magic door which i believe was on channel two here the cbs station in chicago and there was a, a portion where you could send in your picture. You know, you were watching, you were, you know, you were a viewer and it was almost like Romper Room, another locally produced show where, you know, there was a teacher that sort of had a, a classroom on the air, this fun teacher, and she had this magic mirror and she would pretend to see, oh, and I see Tommy and Janie and Jimmy and you'd wait to hear your name. Um, today it would be I see Noah and Aiden and Olivia and Emily and Braxton, <laughs> you know there's no little Jimmy's and Mikey's and Stevies and Alice's and Mary's anymore <laughs> but um but i one time I'm watching the show, a magic door, and they had this little segment where they would you know invite you to send your picture in, and they would print they would show your picture on screen and say, "Oh, here's some of our the people that listen to us." And there was a picture of one of my classmates when I went to St. Bartholomew school here in Chicago, a Catholic school. And one of my classmates, one of my, my female classmates, obviously watched the show. She sent in her picture. There it was. I remember coming in on Monday the next day and saying, Alice, I saw your picture. So... I wasn't the only Christian watching the Jewish-based magic door. <laughs> uh, the naivete of, of children, right? But actually, uh, I wonder through osmosis, I've always been intrigued uh, and interested in the Jewish culture, uh, religious as well as the culture itself, especially through the use of Yiddish. Uh, the language of Yiddish. And I learned that from television as well. Watching the reruns, not the first run shows, but watching the reruns of many television shows, especially in the early days, were written by Jewish writers. And every so often, they would throw in a Yiddish expression. In fact, there's one episode on the old Dick Van Dyke show, uh, centered around a Jewish term, it was a takeoff. I believe Carl Reiner, who wrote many most of the of the episodes, it was a takeoff on the emerging rock and roll scene. Uh, at the time, the establishment in the late fifties and early sixties had fun with rock and roll because the music at that point was like with Frank Sinatra and, and the crooners and. Uh, the the words were things were a little more articulate uh and uh, uh a little more literal the lyrics to songs they were corny no question about that there was a lot of moon and june rhymes going on but it was still based on a foundation if you will of words and you know word pictures if you will and stories And then rock and roll came along and it was an expression of feeling and emotion and rebellion. And so, you know, we had wop, bamba, lubom, a wop, bam, boom, Tootie Fruity, Oh Rudy, Little Richard, you know, what the heck is a wop, bamba, lubom, a wop, bam, boom. And so a lot of the established entertainers at the time would, who looked at rock and roll as kind of a a very temporary musical fad. So it was the early days of rock were were loved by the kids and kind of dismissed by the adults. Like, this is silly. There's a famous scene where Steve Allen, who was the first host of The Tonight Show, was making fun of the lyrics to Tutti Frutti and other rock songs that, that had more of these crazy expressions that weren't nonsensical but they didn't understand it it wasn't about what was being said it was how it was being said it was emotion it was freedom it was liberation it was just exclamation and that was quite different from the music and the entertainment of the times that was dominated by the adults rock and roll really you know shifted the paradigm suddenly the culture was catering to and shining upon youth oriented uh entertainment, and as I've said many times this podcast today, we are now ruled by teenage and there's no question we are ruled by the the teenage uh, view of the world in terms of our technology and entertainment uh, most of the apps that are designed, as I've said many times, are designed for probably teenagers, mainly probably teenage girls who drive the technology of the smartphone, which drives our technology, which drives our culture. But my point is there was an episode on the Dick Van Dyke show called Bopkiss. There was a song called Bopkiss. And I remember, and I once again, I was too young to see it on its first run, but I watched the Dick Van Dyke and still do watch the reruns of Dick Van Dyke shows growing up. They were on television, always have been on TV. It seems since they went off the air in the, in the mid sixties. And there's an episode called Bupkis and basically it's a song. I think the group is of, once again, you could tell that it's written by somebody from the older generation that doesn't understand rock and roll and thinks it's kind of stupid and just makes fun of it and gets an easy laugh off of it. But I think, uh, the name of the group that, that recorded Bupkis were the Dum Dums. I mean, perfect, you know, and once again, it got an, an easy laugh because the adults, you know, Dick Van Dyke, you know, were making fun of the youth culture at that time. So it's Bupkis by the dum dums, you know. But my point is Bupkis is a Yiddish word meaning nothing. In fact, the song that becomes the central part of this episode called Bupkis, the lyrics go Bupkis means a lot of nothing, and that's what I got from you. Bupkis! So bupkis means nothing, and I learned, I think bupkis probably was the first Yiddish word I ever learned because of watching the Dick Van Dyke show, and then as I got older, I started to hear more Yiddish terms that were inserted into movies and television, mostly television because I watched television as a young kid, religiously. I do a lot of things religiously, right? (laughs) But um, to the point where I, I enjoy using Yiddish terms sometimes, like nachas, which means joy, or mishagas, or mitzer, and, and things like that. Uh, shlemiel, shlamazel, right? You remember that from Laverne and Shirley? At the beginning, their theme song, shlemiel, shlamazel. Those are Yiddish terms. And in fact, a friend of mine Bought me a book called The Joys of Yiddish. It's almost like a Yiddish dictionary. (laughs) But uh, I bring this up because uh, the, the situation and the horrendous acts that have taken place over the last couple of weeks here, and as I record this, are still happening, and and I record this before it's posted, so uh, I don't know what may be happening since I recorded this. Um, but certainly, we've got some major unrest uh, in the Middle East again, which seems to be a just a reoccurring. Um, problem that has been going on for centuries. And my point about this little mini history lesson about the visuals of television is that it really struck me um, because this, this time, even in my lifetime, there have been different skirmishes throughout the Middle East. And as I said, they've been going on for centuries and decades but even in my lifetime, uh, nothing as as horrific as this. But certainly, um, you know, I've, we've always heard about the Middle East peace process. And as a, as a young kid, I didn't fully understand what was going on, but I, I remember hearing names from watching different TV shows. I used to, I've been watching Meet the Press as a little kid and hearing about different. Leaders in the Middle East: Golda Meir, Yasser Arafat, uh, General, uh, you know Sharon, and uh, Menachem Begin, and uh, and people like this that were major players. Uh, Anwar Sadat of Egypt, major players, and now uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and obviously Ayatollah Khomeini in uh, iran in the in the iranian hostages in the late 70s um and the arab sheikhs like uh, king faisal and people like this i remember being a little kid i mean king faisal i don't really know too much about him but i know you know why i know who that name is because he's referenced in a song that was done by a disc jockey called dickie goodman in in a in a parody song that used little clips from songs to to, you know, as a comic comic effect, called the energy crisis 1974, where we were have, we were having energy crisis and gas lines and and oil problems. And King Faisal, I believe, was the head of Saudi Arabia at the time. So once again, I, I got a lot of my my knowledge from entertainment, songs, and television shows and movies. Um, but, uh, couldn't, you can't help, but this has been a, a standing, uh, you know, conflict, even when things haven't been as chaotic and violent as they are right now and, and pressure cooker filled, uh, with, with acts of, of war and terrorism. That have killed people innocent people um, and and shown the ugly side of of human behavior and the the uh, the dangers of blind faith and I've talked about that in, on many occasions whether you're a fan of a football team or a religious based blind faith uh is always dangerous, and I think we're seeing that. Um, But what makes things interesting, from my standpoint this time, I've always taken an interest, as I've said, I've, I've had an interest in the Jewish culture through people I've met and worked with, friends, as well as, from an early age, being exposed to different aspects of the Jewish culture. Which is one reason why I think that I have uh you know taken an interest in it, followed it, learned about it um, but this time it it's it, it, it it's become more than just pictures. we can be a little desensitized as much as all the pictures and all the visual aspects that we that we are inundated with today as i said at the beginning that we are stimulated by that we are exposed to on demand through our televisions and for many people most people today through our phones which as i said many times we need to change the the name of that it's not a smartphone anymore get 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 off of that it's some we have to come up with a new name for this device because the phone is probably the fifth thing that people use it for you yeah. know it's 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 a it's a mobile commu, a mobile computer and a mobile tv station and a mobile video studio right we're able to to check email we're computing using the the, the use of a computer just on, on its a basic form where you can check email and other things like that or go on google and find a, a search engine but then we're also creating our own video with this, so it's kind of like a video studio. And we're, we're watching movies and television and, and homemade videos, so it's kind of like a screening room. It's really not a television. I mean, it's not, it's not really a telephone. Even when we are con- communicating, we're not talking. We're mostly texting. So we got to get telephone off of there it's not a phone anymore Um, but uh but you know for most of us these pictures that we get sent back from these world events as much as they provide us a unique opportunity to see as i said the 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 importance of seeing cannot be underestimated in terms of how we react as people individually and as a society and a culture worldwide collectively cannot underestimate the importance of the visual. But as much as we have this capability and this expectation of this capability, we want to see the pictures. When you hear about some horrific event, whether it was this uh, attack on Israel a few weeks ago, or it was 9 11, or it was a space launch, or something, or the attack on the Capitol here in the United States, January 6th, what's the first thing you do? If you start hearing about this, you want to see pictures of it. There was a time when it was. We were only capable of reading about it or hearing about it through radio and television. But now, our first reaction, if we first hear about it somewhere, or read about it, the first thing we do is find our visual outlet. You go to one of the 24-hour news networks whichever your preference is so you'll go to cnn or fox or msnbc or wherever c-span whichever whatever is your thing to see the pictures wait wait there's i remember a friend of mine went on january 6th i didn't even know i wasn't watching television i wasn't i was doing something else and i was on my computer and a friend of mine just sent me an email it's like can you believe what's going on in washington right now what And the first thing I did was go to a television and turn on on CNN or one of the the networks. And I, whoa, had no idea. I remember on on 9-11, I was listening to a radio station and I couldn't understand, as I put on the the, the radio station that I listened to every morning, the station wasn't on. It was a simulcast of the news and I was hearing about this plane that had hit a building in New York. And I immediately turned on the television. You know, this was before, you know, the smartphone. So I immediately turned on my television to see what the heck they're talking about. And then it was one thing to hear about a plane hitting the World Trade Center, but it was certainly another when I turned the TV set on and saw the Twin Towers and the smoke trailing out of that and the hole that the plane had made. It's one thing to say that a plane has hit the World Trade Center. It's another thing to see a photo of it. And it's another thing to have been and seen it in person. We are we don't even realize we take it for granted the instantaneous access we have to information and pictures. I mean my gosh, look at look at what's going on with with today. I mean there's video cameras everywhere. The first thing you hear about if there's a if there's a local crime is the uh, you know, police are canvassing the neighborhood for ring for the for the videos from Ring doorbells. From the video doorbells I mean we don't you know we it's not even it's not even sophisticated video equipment that is uh, you know up on poles or in the air or satellites or you know recognizant missions we we think about this today most of the video a good deal of the video that we get information from is from us, <laughs> our video, it's not that sophisticated. It's, 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 it's from private citizens. It's on people's doorbells on their stoops that you can see the rest of the street to see some you know, crimes happening, whether it's a carjacking or a robbery or things like that. The police use the videos from either private um, alarm security systems or the Ring doorbell. It's not some f- sophisticated thing, as I said before. You know, it took all these satellites and, and to get these pictures from Hawaii of Elvis Presley. My gosh, there's, you know, the the, the the they showed the satellites beaming and the the signals hitting a, one satellite to another one to get it from Hawaii to China, the to United States. I mean, you know, and today our our, our technological uh, capabilities, we take them for granted. The idea that our doorbell would be a source of video. The thought of that 10 years ago or five years ago was kind of crazy, and now we take it for granted. But what I'm leading up to is the fact that uh, this entire uh, Middle East crisis that we're in right now that is, is, has so many different ramifications and once again is showing uh how divided that we are um, not only as a country, the United States but as a world um uh, it 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 has really hit home for me even more because I think i you know if you listen to the podcast um I visited the Middle East just this year, just six, seven months ago. Well, probably longer than that now, maybe eight months ago, but less than a year ago. I was in the Middle East in January and February on a tourist trip to both Israel and Egypt. Went to Jerusalem and then went throughout Egypt down the Nile to see the pyramids and the different Egyptian relics. I was not, I I flew over the Gaza Strip. I wasn't in Gaza. We were in Jerusalem. But I do remember us flying over and the pilot pointing out that there's the Gaza Strip. So I saw it with my own eyes outside of the plane window. And I lived for... 10 or 11 or 12, 13 days, whatever it was, in the Middle East. Touring, walking, observing in both Egypt and Israel. I was in the Palestinian state. I crossed the border out of Israel into the Palestine state when I visited the Church of the Nativity, which is in Bethlehem, which is in the Palestine state. So I've seen it firsthand. I've walked the streets, not the streets that are sadly uh, you know, being under siege and have been now for the last week on both sides, but I've been in the country I've seen the situation to some extent. I felt the situation. As I said at the time, I, I, I've, I've, I never felt unsafe, but I did feel the tension. It's a very small area of land that is densely populated, and it's um, severely divided, both existentially and physically. ex exits, 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 exits. Having a hard time saying this word. existentially. I hope you can get what I am. Let's just say this. We'll make it simple, so I don't have to keep saying this word incorrectly seventeen times. Religiously. It's divided as well as physically divided, religiously by religious beliefs and physically by a wall in many cases built between Israel and the Palestine state. Um, and so I've, I've, I've walked the streets of both areas and I've, I've seen the, the differences in cultures, and the differences in in religions and and the 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 safety concerns i i i related this story i believe when i talked about my trip the first time on the podcast when we went into palestine we changed buses and drivers because our Jewish bus driver did not feel comfortable driving into Palestine because of the safety aspect. And so we, we we switched buses and we switched drivers and tour guides to have a Palestinian take us through. So there wouldn't be any potential danger. Now, as I said, I never felt it, but that was an odd. I felt like I was in a... In a James Bond movie, where we were switching buses in in, in an alley somewhere, It's felt a little weird um, because we were kind of, you know, making a an effort here to to appease, right, so that we wouldn't draw attention to ourselves, a an Israeli uh, led tour bus with Americans on it could be viewed as a threat or a target in this unstable part of the world. So I sort of got a little piece of it firsthand, just through that, of this conflict. And it it, it did feel odd and strange. And I did come home with a deeper understanding It was more than just pictures on a TV screen now, or stories that you read in a paper about this conflict. Even in the smallest way, I I began to at least feel it personally and understand it personally. And so that's why when the attack happened a few weeks ago, even though it wasn't, on streets that I walked on, it was in an area that I had walked on, and even in my own little small way, I experienced the tensions and the potential danger, and the 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 division, the, the, the and the the reality of what people were living in on a daily basis there. In fact, the day that we were leaving Israel to go to to Egypt, that day there was an, uh, an Israeli bombing of a Palestinian refugee camp that they believe there was a terrorist cell that was planning something and at that time it was one of the worst um you know bombings that had happened in many years and we were leaving the next morning early and so we only uh we continued to hear about it after now we were in Egypt but i remember being in jerusalem even though this did not take place near jerusalem but as i said before israel is not that big of a country and and so all of a sudden even while i was there while my immediate safety never was threatened this wasn't a terrorist attack on a surprising or unsuspecting civilian uh you know population like the the recent attack was it still did sort of pull up your, your 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 you know your 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 safety concerns like whoa wait a minute what ooh, there was a bombing and what's going on you know and so a little scary uh I never felt, once again, physically in danger, but to know that there were missiles and bombs attacking and then there was expected retaliation, and there actually was retaliation on the Palestinian side, but the Israeli Iron Dome, which shoots down missiles, um, incoming missiles, was apparently used. Now, once again, it wasn't across the street from me, but it was in the country I was in. And it wasn't that far away. It was a couple hundred miles, but it was close enough. It wasn't thousands of miles away on a picture on my television set or a picture on my smartphone. I was physically there. And so when I started to see the pictures, first, once again, I heard about this attack. And the first thing I did was go to the visual aspect of how can I see this? Um, you know, the buildings... And even the homes that you saw when this attack happened that were bombed and, and and overtaken. I remember seeing buildings like that. I didn't see these exact buildings. I wasn't in the Gaza Strip walking the streets. But the streets of Gaza didn't look all that different than many of the streets I saw in Palestine. When we were walking... Amongst the area when we went to the to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and so I had a re, I had a personal and an up close view and a relatable view of what this attack was, more than just pictures, and it's still very disturbing. Because as I said, we, I think we get desensitized when we see these events and these actions that happen far away from us as, as illuminating as these photos are, these, this visual stimulation, this visual information that we receive, as informationally and accessible as they are to us, um, they still feel remote. It still feels like it's over there. It's somewhere else. It's not in me. But this time it felt different because I had been in that area at least. I had, I had had some personal interaction with the conflict, not in any real danger per se, but certainly taking precautions against danger. If you have to, to take a precaution again for your safety, then that means that there's a danger. Even though, once again, we try to, you know, rationalize and put layers between us. But obviously, we switch buses and we switch tour guides and, and, and drivers for a reason. Not just because it would be cool. There was real purpose behind that for our safety. And so this attack and this situation now that continues to brew and we don't, no one knows what it will, what will happen next and what it will lead to next. That's what's even more scary. But this time, as crazy it is to think in my own mind, the... The realities of the Middle East, which seem so remote and so over there-ish, certainly hit home and continue to hit home. And one of the things that that I first, when when I started to see some of the uh, protests happening around the world and in the United States against israel and against their possible retaliation while we have president biden and the united states officially on record saying that israel has a right to defend itself there's also everybody is treading lightly on the innocent victims or the innocent people of palestine who may be adversely affected if israel goes in to defend itself Against this terrorist attack. So it's, it's once again, this region is tricky to begin with, and this situation is even trickier. And because of our access through television, through especially the, the, the smartphone, we have different reactions now to events. Many people myself included very surprised at the uprising of protests after you see and hear about the horrific terrorist attack that there's still a great groundswell not just in the United States, obviously not throughout the Middle East, but in countries around the world like in France and paris and in in in, in London, England of of protest and and of uh, support for the Palestinian side, many people s- see this attack against the Israeli people that were, you know, murderous and beheadings and torturous and and other unspeakable acts. And you would think, well, immediately there would be a complete and unqualified condemning of that but that has not happened and i believe that that is a result of our access today of our information that we're able to get in many ways there's there's propaganda and false information as well as legitimate and real information that is that is created and consumed and many times in today's world, we have, a, diff- we have a, a hard time deciding which is which. But I wonder this question. Forget political things and pro- forget what side you're on. As I said, I don't, I don't like to get political here because in today's world, uh, it's a no-win situation. But I always like to look at the existential. There's my word knew I 'd get it the existential question that I have is when I saw the uprising and the protests against Israeli retaliation, it made me think as I think it shocked many people it certainly shocked me the amount and the and the the vehement support that some protesters had against Israel, even though israel had been attacked in a most brutal way so it's shocked and still continues to shock many people as to the, that reaction but we are moved by pictures we are moved by the information that we receive we didn't have that kind of access before in the media we heard kind of one side but now we're getting many sides from many places and we're getting many pictures from many places some are true, some are not. It's hard for us to disseminate. But I wonder, there's, when you see this, for those of you and those of us that remember 9-11, for instance, I can't help but think that there has been a major shift in how we think and view world events today. Just as there was an immediate anger in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese and got America into World War II. I mean, there were people that overnight immediately signed up to go to war, to be in the army or in the armed forces. The next day, that was black and white. This was wrong. We were attacked. We got to go get them. And that 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 kind of black and white assured you know moral compass, right and wrong, is very blurred today because we have many different um, platforms by which our information is coming to us, visually as well as written, but mostly visually. And so I wonder. In just the last twenty-two years, you can talk about Pearl Harbor, nineteen forty-one. Oh my God, it's eighty years ago, Jim. You know, obviously things have changed in eighty years. Okay, I'll give you that. But twenty-two years is not that long. Once again, in the timeline of human behavior, and I wonder, given our realities today. The realities of, of social media and, and smartphones and, and 24-hour uh, news-gathering organizations that have biases on one way or the other, whatever your political bent is, once again, I'm not, I'm not favoring one over the other, but there's no question that the news organizations have their biases. There's no question that social media... Oftentimes is propaganda, it's created. We're seeing this AI stuff now. It's harder to decide what is true and what isn't. But we are always taken by the visual. When a Palestinian hospital was bombed last week, there was a question of whether it was an Israeli attack or whether it was a misfired Palestinian missile aimed at at Israel that blew up the hospital, this horrific act of blowing up a hospital. But many commentators were saying, whatever the truth is, it, it really doesn't matter because each side will use this in their own way. And the pictures of this hospital being blown up and innocent people and sick people being taken out or killed is, is the, is the picture and is the moment that people will react to and make up their minds. Whose fault it was won't really matter. How scary is that? That the truth won't matter. Because the visual will be so strong that it will either reinforce your pre-existing idea for or against whoever you, whatever side you're on. So even if it's proven that it was an Israeli attack or if it's proven that it was a, an errant misguided missile that the Palestinians shot, it doesn't matter. Each side will use it for what the result was, that a hospital was hit, and use it to their ends. And the visual of that will have great impact on the people on both sides of the argument. So the truth, people were saying, really won't matter. That's dangerous when the truth doesn't matter. But my question is, given the division, given the lack of clarity, given the fact that there's so much noise out there, visual noise especially, if that makes any sense, so much social media, so much propaganda, I wonder... For those of you that were alive and 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 remember clearly the events of 9/11, those pictures, that those pictures that you saw of the plane both having hit the World Trade Center, the one that that we saw hit the other one. When we saw the buildings collapse, we saw the 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 the, the dust storms and we saw the the death of, the, of, of all the first responders and, and the people in those buildings and the surrounding neighborhoods, when that all was happening and, and the aftermath of it, the country and the world united and said how terrible and wrong this act of violence and terrorism was. Even leaders in the Middle East were shocked. I remember Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian uh side at that time. Even though this wasn't a Palestinian thing, but you know, he was he was viewed as being uh you know, in, in the midst of the Mid- Middle East, uh, you know, crisis, a major actor, a player in it, and it took him by surprise. And you could see his face; he was in shock that such a horrific act of news of 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 airplanes used as weapons. But I wonder, in today's world, if the same event happened, I wonder how universal the common the, the you know the condemning of 911 would have been by most of the world and not just around the world in other countries i even wonder if there would have been protests within our country would there have been protests in major cities on major uh college campuses not feeling sorry for the united states as a victim but condemning and almost rationalizing why those attacks happened i wonder if the universal condemning of 9-11 that happened around the world and especially in this country, which at least for a short period of time, galvanized and united this country. I don't know in today's world, with all of the social media and pictures and access to information and photos that we have, I don't know if our reaction And our response would have been as united against it as it was then. Because if we see a division against this attack on Israel now, and it shocked many people to see the uprising in cities around the world, within the country, on college campuses, condemning Israel, even though they were attacked, I wonder if those same sentiments wouldn't be in play if America was attacked as much as it seemed to be unprovoked and a horrific terrorist act at the time almost universally condemned. I don't know if that kind of unity, that moral compass of right and wrong, the the, the black and white of it, I just don't know if that exists anymore. It would be very interesting to see how the world and how even our own country would react. It's a very uncertain time. I don't have any answers, but I share this with you today on this podcast because I, th- I, I it. it, it this situation has has hit me in a different way. And I want to share that with you is that whatever your views on this are, if you can, try to take a step back and think about the realities and the human element of this on both sides. I have no answers as to how To reconcile the Mideast conflict, it has been around for centuries. Any kind of religious based conflict has so many different layers. As I said before, blind faith in anything is dangerous. Blind faith in a religion, blind faith in a government, blind faith in a person has can be very dangerous, and we've seen that, whether it's been the Nazi party or whether it's been Adolf Hitler or whether it's been anything. Blind faith in either a person or a religion or an organization many times brings a catastrophic kind of result. And for me, having just been to the Middle East and seeing this, I have a deeper understanding and a deeper realization of not only the conflict, but also the consequences. I can only hope that somehow, some way, cooler heads prevail in the coming weeks and months and even years. Because this is the way catastrophic wars begin with small, relatively at the beginning, isolated incidents that then take on bigger consequences and bigger meanings and they begin to have a domino effect and they and one another reaction or another action forces another reaction and then things got out of control so all i can say is we are in a very turbulent time and i've said this many times on the podcast we are living in a very difficult transformational, transitional time. All I would ask is we, we try to keep our eyes open and our hearts open. And we hope that the better angels will overcome our primal, Instincts. I have no answers. I I just have questions, and uh, but I have this time some personal experience, which makes me even sadder than usual. Because in this case, uh, I have a, a new appreciation for the region and for the conflict. And for the people, I met both Israelis and Palestinians when I was there. And so I just hope that somehow this centuries-old conflict can be not so much resolved, because I don't think it ever can be, but hopefully at least it can be de-escalated but I think we all need to look at ourselves and begin to think a little clearer as to our own moral compasses and how we view events and how we take them in and how we process them and how we develop our opinions. And I hope we can do it in a way that there is the least amount of danger and of consequence. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. Don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 387. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.